I'm Kimberly C. Palm. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. Well, I'm really glad to be talking to Jane Duncan Rogers today. A few weeks ago, I was able to see your TEDx talk. And being a TEDx uh, kind of gone through that process, um, I was so excited to hear that I was selected. But then I was scared to, can I use death, um, because of the process. So talk to me a little bit about your TED talk and how that evolved for you. Yes, well, thank you. It's called How to Do a Good Death. And I was invited to give this uh, talk. Um, and I knew at the time that I was going to say yes. And I knew that I would be terrified when it came to it. And I was. <laughs> but, you know, being scared of things had never really stopped me doing things. So um, that was kind of par for the course. Um, and I started it by something very similar to yours, actually, because I started by saying, talking about the elephant in the room, because it, it's, I mean, the elephant in the room possibly has got a little bit smaller now, you know, since the pandemic, but it's still there. It's still there a lot. Um, and I felt, but I felt I wanted to tell my story, my personal story and how important it is for people to start talking about death and then on the back of those conversations take some actions and that's really what the talk was about. And it was lovely by the way. I thought I really enjoyed your story and it kind of opens up that you know that's what we also have in common is that we are brought to this field that we find ourselves in by stories. Yeah. And and so let's talk about what brought you here because it was your husband Philip Yes, it was. Well, Philip got, um, he was diagnosed with stomach cancer in 2010. And initially, we thought that was not, you know, going to be completely life threatening, because they said if they get all the tumour out, and it was caught quite early, then he would have a prognosis of 20 years. And he was, you know, just under 60, I think, at that point. So this was quite good. But actually, he had chemo, he had the operation, but it didn't work in, in that they didn't manage to get everything out. So suddenly we were faced with the fact that actually he wasn't going to be around very much longer. And um, he died within 14 months of the diagnosis. Um, but what had happened was about maybe five months or so before he actually died, I had received an email from a friend saying, you must get Philip to answer all these questions before he dies. I don't think she'd put it quite as blunt as that. But anyway, <laughs> the questions were really quite hard hitting, like what kind of coffin do you want? What are your passwords? How do you want your body to be dressed? And, you know, really practical things. Now, I ignored that email and I ignored the second one that came as well, and the third one. And eventually I said to Philip, look, we have to just answer these questions because she's going to be on our back otherwise. So we sat up in bed one morning with the laptop and the questions, and I typed his answers to the questions. And it was two or three hours of actually a really creative time. It felt like it was one of our 
well, as it turned out, it was our last project together. And we'd been really good at doing projects together, like doing up houses and writing books together and working together and everything. So it was a surprise that we felt that we were talking about his death and yet we were feeling so close and so loving. And it was just amazing, actually, really amazing. So that, and then yes, he did die and it did help me. Now I tell a little story about this because um, he had answered the question about what he wanted his body to be dressed in. And it's not something that I would have thought of because he said he wanted to be dressed in his dressing gown. Now, his dressing gown is one that I had made for him. So that made sense, but I wouldn't have thought of that. And when the undertaker who came to the house after Philip had died, when the undertaker asked me about this, it felt so good to be able to say what I knew. And I think we underestimate how important that kind of thing is. You know, the feeling that you get when you know that you're carrying out somebody else's wishes around in, in whatever aspect it is of death. But in this case, it was this one. And um, it, it really helped. It really consoled me, if you like, at a time where I was just devastated. Even though I knew it was coming, I was utterly de- devastated. It's like you were still connected, though, yeah. because you knew yeah. what his wishes were. And it was it was almost like a bridge of connection because you know, these people who were coming in didn't know him and you knew exactly what he wanted. It must have brought so much comfort it to did. you. Yeah, it did. It was comforting. And um, all, the, all the questions that we had answered had that effect, actually, because it made me feel safe. There was one that I wrote about in my first book, which was which we hadn't taken care of, though which was that after maybe it was about two weeks after he had died and somebody had been with me all the time Philip and I had never had children so I was left on my own and but I had a friend's day and then she left and um I came back from the airport that evening and it wasn't very nice to come to an empty house but there I was and that evening I sat down and switched on the television and it didn't come on to the normal guide thing screen that I was used to so she must have been watching it or something and I could not get it back to that I couldn't get it to the program that I wanted to watch and I was so upset because normally I would have just said Philip can you sort this out please and I didn't know what to do so now with the work that I do that kind of detail is what I ask people to think about in advance because it doesn't sound very much but at the time oh god I was in floods of tears and couldn't think straight anyway, even, you know, if I could have followed instructions, but there weren't any, I couldn't find any instructions. Sounds mad when I say about it now, every time I say this, it It sounds mad. Well, you know, it's, I I think it's, it's those little things that remind you of, Hey, Philip, can you help me? And, and Philip is no longer there. Yeah. And it's, it's that, that empty space that feels so, Oh man, empty. I know. You know. Um, so let's talk about um, you know that conversation. You didn't want to have it. No. And you <laughs> and you were sort of your friend was like nudging you. And how grateful are you? Oh, incredibly grateful. You know, she was a nurse specialist. She knew that this these things were going to make a big difference to me. And when I read them. 
I could see that they would make a big difference to me as well. The level of detail and the the, the thinking that had to go into it. Um, but, you know, talking about all these specific things with somebody who's actually dying, who knows that they're dying, that is, you know, it, I'm a pretty courageous person, but it really took me all my courage and more to say to say to Philip, actually, we are going to do this now. And to not go down the emotional route, you know, and to not allow the tears. I, I didn't feel tear, tearful, funnily enough. I was afraid of doing it. But once we got going, it was okay. So if if you like, the fear of it was worse than the actual doing of it, as in so many cases with fear, of course. Um, so I, I am hugely grateful to her, hugely grateful, because that initial conversation has what has been what has guided me, in fact, for the rest of my life since then in terms of the business that I'm now doing. So yeah, amazing. And that TED I love it. <laughs> and you know, then and I love that you share that because so many people are afraid to begin the conversation. And yet it's so rewarding um on the other side. And you and you're right. You know, it did inspire you to do and I find this very curious because you know, there's a lot of people that say, oh, I want to write a book and they never do. Um, and I want to do this and they never do. You actually took your husband's death and created a pathway yeah. for other people to engage in these very hard conversations. And it's before I go solutions. So how did you, what motivated you from thinking about this to actually doing it? Because that, that to me is rare. Yeah. Okay. Well, I had I had been practicing as a small business coach and I had a blog and I love to write. I've always loved to write, you know, just like stories when I was a kid, that sort of thing. But I was writing a blog, regular blog for my clients and, and people then um, about business stuff. And after Philip died, um, well, actually, in that whole year, I had been journaling a lot. I've always journaled all my life, you know, and uh, pen and paper journal. <laughs> Me too. And, Me uh, too. Isn't that yeah. crazy? Yeah. Oh, but I have found it very, very useful for processing things. But I knew at some point that I would write write the story of this. Now, at the point when I when I say I knew that I would do that, um, I didn't know that I was going to publish a book and it would become what it has now become. But at the time, I knew that I was going to write, and I also knew that I just had to wait and wait and wait and trust that I would know when the time was right. And I did. And it was two and a half years later, and I literally, just like in the novels, I woke up one morning and I thought, oh, now's the time. And I started. I made a little mind map. Um, I was on holiday at that time. I didn't have a computer. I made a little mind map. When I came back home, um, I waited again. And again, one morning, I woke, and there there. I had done my plan. I just started writing and it all poured out. Quite cathartic because I had to go back and look at my journals to see what I had written. And what an interesting thing there. I don't very often talk about this, but um, this was like two and a half years on, maybe, yeah, about two and a half years on. And I was going back to the very raw emotion of those early days. And I could see that I had moved on. I could I, because I didn't feel like that anymore. And I'd forgotten how awful I felt. But there it was, black and white and lots of red as well, on the page. And 
that was very helpful actually because it was a demonstration to me that people do get through grief and move forward in different ways so so then I published the book self-published book gifted by grief and um I thought I mean I'd had quite a lot of um insights and spiritual awakenings and this sort of stuff um and I thought that's what people would like and that wasn't what they responded to. They responded to the chapter where I had written about these questions that I'd asked Philip. And, you know, after about the sixth or the eighth or tenth person who said, oh, my God, I need to answer these questions, too. I sort of went, oh, all right. OK, well, so I did a little bit more research. I put them all together into um, a few pages that I just stapled together. And I think I called it. 20, the Good Death Guide, 27 Questions to Ask and Answer Before You Die, or something like that. I love it. And then, and then I put on a local workshop, which I had been used to doing from my other work here, and it filled up just like that. And there was a waiting list as well. So I was like, ah, interesting. So from that point, I felt like I was being, life itself was grabbing me by the shoulders and showing me which direction to go. And that's what it's been like ever since, actually. <laughs> So wow. I know, amazing. Uh it's, and and you do have a website called Before I Go Solutions. Talk to me a little bit about what that website, what your jack or, or your hope is for that for that yeah. website. Yeah, it's before I go solutions.com and our purpose, I can say our now because we are a team of people now, but in the beginning it was just me. But the purpose is to have end of life plans become as commonplace as birth plans. Now, if that was really happening, there would be no need for our organization because it would be normal for people to talk about death and have an end of life plan, just like we plan for our wedding or our or a birth or or any major transition. However, we're quite far away from that. <laughs> I don't even know if it'll happen in my lifetime. <laughs> but um, here's the thing. I especially in the early days, I got to talk about Philip a lot. And that was really great because people wanted to know the story of what had brought me to this place because it was even more unusual then, three, four, four or five years ago than it is now to talk about this kind of stuff. And um, But here I was talking about it and uh, feeling that Philip would have been proud of me. And, you know, he was a psychotherapist. His um, motivation in life was to help people to make a difference in their lives and here he was even from the grave still making a difference in a different kind of way so and and still today it feels like that for me um, and so I set up Before I Go Solutions as a not-for-profit and we now um, and then I started running groups now strangely enough I know everything is online these days but in those days we were online right at the beginning right from the beginning because where I live in Scotland there's not so many people around so <laughs> sounds great to me <laughs> <laughs> well I knew that we needed to go online you know to run an online right. course and so we did that and we carried on doing that and that became the before I go method which is my method of how to get people to actually do their end of life plans not just talk about doing it <laughs> which is a big difference it's a huge difference it's a huge difference because despite all the good intentions and despite the desire and despite people knowing that they need to do this sort of thing actually doing it is another matter and I think that's partly because people are um 
it never really doing your end of life plan or even doing your will or a part of your end of life plan doesn't ever really get to the top of your priority list very rarely um so so now also because people asked me to i started training people to be end of life plan facilitators and so we now have more people around the country helping people to to do exactly that because you know all this information about how to plan for a good death and all that it is all out there on the internet people can find it it might not all be in one spot but still having the information doesn't make you do it does it <laughs> not at all and not I, at all i know why do you think we have such a hard time talking about end of life because you know, you think about it, you know, we do plan for everything. Mm. Uh, we plan to move. We, I mean, I just moved to Denver. I mean, it's just, we plan and, and we, I mean, we map out books that we're about to write um, and, and plans like that. But when it comes, we, we tend to talk a lot yeah. about, yeah, we got to do it. Um, and then we don't, and then something occurs and it becomes like an emotional driven reaction um that we find ourselves not making really good decisions in exactly um, exactly and we question ourselves because is that what mom wanted and and just like you you know i have to reference when you talked about philip answering those questions and and the first one when you knew what he wanted the peace it must have given you mm -hmm. and i just I, I want people to cross this bridge because it feels so good on the other side when you know what you don't know, but I can't get them to do it. So why do you feel we have such a hard time? Well, I think partly because since um, death has become more medicalized, i.e. it happens more often in hospitals and outside of the home. So as a child, we don't grow up seeing that, whereas it didn't used to be like that. And not so long ago either, you know, it, was much more the case that um, granny or grandpa would have been living with us or near us and we would have seen them declining and they would, they would have died at home and we would have gone and seen the body and that was normal. But that, that doesn't hardly ever happen these days. So there's that. So we're not familiar with it. So it's, it's almost as if we can live our lives pretending that we're not going to die, which is completely bonkers. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so bonkers. <laughs> But also, I think there's there's also superstition. People think that if they talk about this, it will somehow bring it to them more quickly. Um, I mean, it's all based on fear, really. I, I think um, people also are afraid of offending someone. So they don't want to make a mistake. They don't want to cause upset unnecessarily, all of which are, you know, noble things to be thinking, but actually they're not very useful. Um, because... What I've discovered is that when one person, it only takes one person, has the courage to raise this subject, more often than not, in my experience, more often than not, the people that they're talking to are um, actually, they might be a bit shocked to start with because they're, you know, the D word is being dared to be mentioned, but they're actually relieved underneath, especially if they've been thinking about it as well. So I had a, that happen with a particular person on a course once. She was she's the carer of her parents who were both in their 80s. And she was really terrified to the point of tears about how to broach the subject. But we encouraged her and she went away and she came back the next week and she was delighted because she had said something. She had a context 
that she was on the course. She told her parents and they were relieved as well because they'd been worrying about what to say to her and they didn't know what to say. I know. And, but, you know, we do, those who are not um, exposed to what you and I have been exposed to in our lives, they don't know where to begin. And I think that's why it's so important when it comes to your website and your books, because you actually kind of prompt us, hey, here are some of the questions. And you almost give us permission. And I think that's what people need. That's true. That's true. And one of the things that you do need, I think, is when you're going to have a conversation about death is you need to have a context. I mean, just to sort of say it bluntly over the breakfast table one morning is not a good idea. Unless you have a context. (laughs) It's like, if you have a context in that I've been reading this book and it's really interesting, blah, 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 or I've been doing this course and it's really interesting. This is what I've learned. And actually, I've got some homework and I need to ask you a question. Would you help me with it? Or maybe you know somebody who has died or you've gone to a funeral or you've been on a Zoom funeral or something like that. Then there's a context where you can say how you were thinking about it or what you were feeling about it and ask the other person what they might feel like then it's much easier. Trying to do it without a context and out of the blue does not work, so don't really bother trying. (laughs) Right. You're right. And, you know, I find one of the contents is when I'm talking to my grandmothers um, or older individuals, I kind of say, look, I'm I'm planning for my own end of life and I'm thinking about having my funeral before I die. What do you think about that? And then it opens up because it's about me. Yes, exactly. And then and then they're like, I don't, I don't want that. I'm like, oh, what do you want? And and it becomes this kind of evolution of a conversation, yeah. not putting anyone on the spot. Yeah. Um, so I, that's I I sort of um even though I have planned for everything, I sort of start with that because it really gives other people permission. So yeah. talk to me about your books. Um and and tell me a little bit more about your books and where can people find them. Okay. So they're uh, um you can get them through any bookshop and but also Amazon of course. Um the first one is called Gifted by Grief: A True Story of Cancer, Loss and Rebirth and that's exactly what it's about, the journey up <laughs> to Philip dying in that first year uh, in the his his last year and then my first year after he had died. I think it was maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, and it's that's a memoir, and it's I write it as I'm talking now. That's how I'm writing it. <laughs> um, I love it. And um, and then the second book that came out in 2018 that is before I go the essential guide to creating a good end of life plan, and this was one that I began to realise needed to be written and had written it in my head, but it hadn't made it out onto paper. Um, until I met a an editor at a at a, a gathering one day, and I just had the idea to ask her if she would be interested, and that's basically what happened. And funnily enough, it's actually now published by an American publisher. Um, so that book is very different. It's still I still have a, a, a kind of chatty style. It's just the way I, I will always do things, but. It's divided. I love it. I love it. A chatty style. I hope I have a chatty style too. <laughs> I love it. Well, in that book, it's like there's a begin. There's a two halves. The first is the kind of thinking behind why we need to do all this stuff, and then the second half is much more like it's kind of like a workbook. And if you actually did answer all the questions that are in that workbook, you would have a pretty good end of life plan. However, I suspect most people don't actually do that, but I would love it if they did. Um, 
So uh, yeah, very practical. It's much more practical than than gifted by grief, which is my my own personal journey. It's very personal. I love it. You know, I want you to come to Denver. I think we need to do something once this whole COVID stuff. I would love to do something with you. Yes, that would be great. I think you you have just a sweet and um, approach to very difficult conversations. And I, I, you know, the world is so small. And I think the more we work together, mm-hmm. the bigger impact we might have. Yeah. Um, and so we we got to think about that. I'd love to. I, I yeah, I want to I want to work with you. Right. Um. But tell me, how can individuals learn more about you and your platform? Yeah, best to go to the website before I go solutions.com. Um. If you you can see the TEDx talk on on YouTube, obviously how to do a good death. Just Google it; it'll come up. Um. But yes, on the website we have all sorts of things, all the courses. That's where you can get more information about the books. There's some free stuff there as well. I have a knowledge hub and um, I'm always doing new things. Um, And if anybody is interested in training as an end of life plan facilitator and helping other people, that's also where to find out about that. Really? So you have courses? Yes, yes. We have um, we have an online course so that you can do your own end-of-life plan with some live coaching. Uh, uh, that used to be by me, but now it's by one of our facilitators. But we also do the, we train people to be end-of-life plan facilitators. And actually, I just say it's different from being an end-of-life doula. An end-of-life doula will include um, the, the companionship of somebody who is dying, our work tends to be with people who are not actually having, who don't actually have a terminal illness or, or even anywhere near dying actually, but they are people um, who are wanting to um, put in place the plans ahead of time and then get on with living because that's really important. So that's who the facilitators tend to work with. And yeah, we we now have three intakes a year. I'm delighted, and it's all online. It's wonderful. <laughs> It's so amazing. And that means you can be anywhere you want and still maintain. And, and, you know, it's nothing like planning these, the, around this topic right in your living room. Um, and, and maybe with your partner or husband or whoever. Yeah. Um, I think Philip would be so proud of you. Oh, you know what? That's what I think too. And I was just, um, I was thinking this morning, I was out for a walk, a very snowy walk in the woods. And I was thinking about him. um, And, you know, because it was nine years ago now, that's quite a long time. And I've been, I've got married again, you know, and we're about to move into our new house. I'm very, very blessed. But I was chatting away to Philip this morning in the woods and saying to him that I felt like, you know, we were getting bigger and bigger and I didn't want to be leaving him behind. And then I realized that I wasn't actually leaving him behind he's actually behind me. It felt Mm. like it, you know? And so I had this little chat with him and I felt all close to him all over again. And it was really lovely. (laughs) You know, I, I think that, that people only die when we stop allowing them to impact our lives and we stop talking about them. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I love, I love that Philip is still, creating his legacy through you. Yeah, that's it's amazing. I know. I, I really realized that this morning, you know, in a different way, at a different level. And I felt so good about it, you know, so good. And um, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> Jane, I mean, it's just, it's just really 
it's just really wonderful to to talk to you and and um, I hope people will go to your website and I really really appreciate you coming on and spending some time on this snowy morning in Denver and in Scotland. Um, you're a delight and I look forward to what we can collaborate on and how we can continue to change how we how individuals and ourselves find uh, how we live and face end of life. You're amazing. Thank you. Wonderful. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.